You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everyone. It's the first day of a new month. You could be forgiven for losing sense of time in the present COVID lockdown situation here in Victoria. The horror stories coming out of the privatised aged care sector is... A real-life nightmare, which anyone who has had anything to do with the places as workers, family members or just observers already knew profit versus care puts care an an abysmal last in the equation. It's an ongoing cesspool, so hopefully something good will come out of this. Here's hoping. It's not much fun being on the the told-you-so side of politics when it's real people being affected so badly. If you have been worrying about the attacks on our democracy, the news of the federal attack dogs in America in the streets of Portland attacking peaceful demonstrators against the desire even of the local elected officials won't be a comfort. And more locally, the news that the police charged with beating up and humiliating a disabled pensioner when they went on a welfare check receiving a fine without conviction, meaning I suppose that they can still be employed as police, also won't be a comfort. Well, last Friday, Bernard Kaliri and Witness Jay received Liberty Victoria's Voltaire Empty Seat Award, and what Bernard had to say should give some emphasis to the worrying signs of a federal government displaying itself as unrepresentative swill. You may have heard that despite the said federal government being forced to broaden the membership of its special COVID committee advising the cabinet in these unprecedented times. It is diluting the gas industry's hold on the group. There will still be no public disclosure of proceedings since, as the PM says coyly, it is covered by cabinet incompetence. Well, since uh, the parliament's been closed down until... Further notice, we should all feel really safe in our democracy. This week, Paul Bastian from the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, who was the lone union representative on the same committee, said at the launch of the Centre of Future Works report, Manufacturing Still Matters, that the committee was only interested in gas projects and that any discussion he tried to push into manufacturing jobs and other economic possibilities were never taken up. So Frydenberg's bankrupt statements about taking his inspiration from Thatcher and Reagan show once again, in the words of Michelle O'Neill, president of the ACTU, just more crazy talk 
from the guys with their hands on the tiller. Today we'll hear some of Bernard Collieri's words from Liberty Victoria's Voltaire Awards. Humphrey McQueen, who was a featured speaker at the recent launch of Life campaign, Living Incomes for Everyone. Kevin Healy sums up the week and Alison Pennington, Chief Economist at the Centre for Future Work, suggests the opportunities for a unionised workforce coming out of COVID in opposition to the lame business-led recovery on offer from the federal government, whipped on by the self-worshipping business class. But before we get on with all this business, an important station message. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Liberty Victoria is one of the organisations that fight for our civil liberties. And last week they gave out their annual Voltaire Awards. Two of the recipients were Bernard Collieri and Witness J, who are caught up in the web constructed by the federal government's anti-terrorism laws, which are being used to imprison people without due process and prosecute others like Bernard Collieri in closed court under the guise of national security. The following is part of the Q&A Bernard had with Julian Burnside last Friday when he accepted his award. It is quite a chilly reflection on Australia, which is now known internationally as not a free democracy, but a narrow democracy. This is what he had to say. Assuming the case against you fails, what will the greatest impact of the case have been? Myself, well, it's just, as you know, Julian, if you take a long holiday as a barrister, it's very hard for briefs to come back. It's very difficult. Uh, And they say when you go and do a Royal Commission, I've done a few more than year-long matters, and you find there's very little afterwards sometimes. People think you're preoccupied still with the Commission or the inquest or the inquiry. So uh, my practice has been ruined. Um, My retirement, comfortable, probably was going to be a fairly sparse retirement anyway, but it's now not a comfortable prospect. And um, uh, I have children and grandchildren and children in school and university with the name Caleri. It's not a nice thing. I mean, I hope they're proud of their grandfather, but... It's not nice, and um, particularly at primary age, children don't really understand. They just hear jail and trial. So um, I think 
um, just the injustice of it. Uh, there's just su such awful karma for me to be about to go into the dock of the court where I've spent my career. It's Shakespearean. It's, uh, well, it's pretty tragic, really. It's wrecked everything. I don't think I ever um, could have imagined that this this appointment, this man coming in, who I couldn't turn away, could not turn away, um, this man coming in um, to see me, uh, a man whose operational background I knew nothing of in terms of anything relevant, um, but I'm never going to walk out on seeking justice. I, I know where you come from too, uh, Julian. So that's the, that's just where we come from as, as lawyers. And we have to lump it, and I'm lumping it at the moment. There was a decision by the judge hearing the matter uh, uh, on the application of the Attorney General Christian Porter uh, to suppress evidence. Um, now, is that the ruling which has been appealed? Um, or has that ruling been appealed? His Honour uh, brought down a multi-page um, reasons for judgment. Uh, the judgment, in short, was that um, the core of my trial would be in secret. Um, uh, we were reading that judgment a few minutes later in the room adjoining the court, and uh, Mr. Porter's officers came into the room and asked for the judgment back because they were of the view that um, his honour um, shouldn't have produced it on his own laptop and uh, the judgment contained matters of national security significance. Um, and so I, nev I never got to, to read it. Um, uh, there is now produced, um, extraordinarily, I don't think we've ever seen it ourselves in our lifetime. Um, the judge was, there was an, another hearing on another day. Uh, the attorney's officers, um, I, I want to make clear, the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecution representatives have no play in most of this, next to nothing. They, 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 they're on the sidelines. This is Attorney General uh, Porter, having his officers in court. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment, but uh, the uh, judge was asked to redact various things by Mr. Porter's office. And uh, the eventual outcome is that there is a unredacted matter, that uh, judgment that's secret that the media and Australians can't read, and there's a redacted one. Um, so there it is. In respect of the role of the Commonwealth Director public prosecutions. Um, Julie and I, uh, as Attorney General in the ACT, was very keen to create the Office of DPP in the ACT, and that came in, I think the bill uh, was drafted or the Act was passed, and then my successor, uh, Attorney General, uh, uh, joined it. We all know that after the Guildford Six in the UK, the Independent Director of Public Prosecutions was established in the UK. It followed in 1985, for the federal government here in Australia. So why in these more than 35 court appearances are the proceedings dominated by the Attorney General, a, a politicians, his representatives, 
and why does the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, uh, Prosecutors have so, so little to say? Um, what we're seeing is another bulwark of democracy eroded as well. Now, the, um, your trial involves some criminal actions by some politicians. And generally speaking about the law, when it comes to national security legislation and criminal acts, what recourse is available for keeping politicians to account in the intelligence space? Uh, what mechanisms would you consider adding to our current landscape, given that Australia's got, what, more uh, anti-terror legislation than any other Western country, so far as I'm aware? We've got to repeal this legislation. It was... Uh, uh, the legislation is being used at the moment against myself and Witness K as a fig leaf to cover the coalition's shame. It, uh, I, I doubt that there'd be... Uh, more than one or two percent of Australians who believe that this is a fair go, what's happening. The fig leaf is to use laws that were introduced to tighten up on national security um, post 9-11. If you read the Hansard debates, there'd been a problem in a trial in Canberra. That has been uh, suggested to have been the reason for it. There were other reasons that the fast passage of the bill was pushed on the opposition in the context of terrorism and the steps we had to take to fight terrorism, that terrorists would use the court to prolicise, that they'd find out the identity of Secret Service agents and they'd learn techniques and the rest. I mean, what possibly could relate to national security in a hearing of the nature of mine where we have none of those issues in contest whatsoever. We simply want, I simply want, and Kay simply wants, a finding of unlawful conduct and what flows from that. Because, um, Julian, you, you know Lange, as the High Court decision in Lange is better than I do probably. And, of course, the public, the Australian public, are entitled to know about matters involving the parliamentary executive if it would concern and be proper for Australians to know. And the wave of disgust in relation to this matter sweeping Australia, particularly the legal profession, suggests that it, it is in the terms of the High Court a matter Australians would want to know about and a matter of concern to them. When will we be able to read what Justice Mossop said on the suppression of evidence? I don't know. I haven't got it yet. You do know that the orders against me are that I can only talk to my lawyers in Sydney, uh, only in a room that they've surveyed, cleared and checked, checked, um, and I need to go to Sydney to read documents. There is uh, another safe somewhere in Canberra where um, a very, very decent uh, colleague of mine, a member of the bar, is again giving me pro bono support, I can go to his chambers um, if he's there, and he's a very busy barrister, and, and read documents. So I haven't had the opportunity yet to read the full judgment. It was taken away from me just afterwards. Um, we've got an extension of our time to appeal because of this delay, and uh, we'll almost certainly be appealing because 
we need a decision as to what is the proper place of a neither confirm nor deny claim in our courts of law in this country. Are we, are we going to go that far? That I can be put to trial for something I think as uh, Ian Cunliffe is reported, who, who wrote in Sydney Morning Herald, perhaps the age yesterday, um, can I be put to trial for something that didn't happen or may have happened, didn't happen? I mean, that's the absurdity of it. It's interesting that you uh, mentioned Ian Cunliffe because he has said Australia has never faced such a challenge to its status as a fair democratic country. We must fight and never surrender. I stand ready to do what I properly can do to fight the authoritarians. Now, that's something, Hugh, which I'd like to get a comment from Jay about. But since that will take a little bit of time, um, uh, Bernard, would you like to chip in on that? Oh, look, um, uh, after the raid on, on my chambers, uh, the Hello Trinity College in uh, Cambridge effectively uh, offered uh, asylum to my team, my, myself. Um, I got this wholly fraudulent title there as senior academic visitor. And that was because their second most senior fellow had been described in The Hague as complicit in the breaches of Australia's national security. That was an extraordinary uh, comment to have been made uh, by Australia, and particularly before an international court, of whom three of uh, my leaders, Elio Lauterpach's uh, students, were on. Um, I, even the Russian judge leaned forward in shock uh, when um, Sir Eli Lauterpack stood up and said, well, I haven't got much to say today because um, the other side have seized our brief. I mean, um, Australia is diminished. It's diminished in the eyes of our colleagues, um, Julian in the United Kingdom. Um, you don't lightly um, imply uh, that the second most senior member of the bar in the United Kingdom is complicit in law-breaking, particularly a member of the bar, distinguished knight of the realm, a wonderful person, and um, Sir Lee Lauterpack. And uh, I was, all of my team, deeply ashamed. In fact, when we went back into our roving room, uh, some of uh, my team wept. We were so deeply ashamed of our country, deeply, deeply ashamed. And um, we're insulated to some extent, particularly with COVID-19, uh, from the reactions abroad. But I wasn't surprised when today it was announced that uh, Covictus uh, has declared Australia now not a free democracy, but a narrow democracy. Um, this is awful. This is, uh, we must fix this. It's not just my trial. This is, my trial is no longer uh, whether I gave a secret away to a foreign power. I mean, as if um, this trial is about whether we have rule of law in this country, whether we are a democratic country, and whether our courts can stand up to the executive, and whether provisions of law that say a judge of our court must give um, the greatest weight to the opinion of a young attorney, federal attorney general. Now, 
I, you know, I'm touched by the Second World War, won't go into that, but I was looking at the uh, National Security Act 1939 the other evening. Do you know, with uh, a barbarous and bestial aggressor threatening Australia in 1939, and uh, after the, the sack of Nanking, the massacre in Nanking, we knew uh, what could be faced if uh, the Japanese invasion reached our shores. Not even in that emergency facing such a bestial prospect did our parliament deny judges the right to close a court. Section 8 of the National Security Act 1939, passed by Robert Menzies, Evatt, Curtin, Chifley, all those members of parliament, Beasley, that left the power to close a court in national security trials to the judges. How is it that we've gone away from what we didn't do facing an invasion? It just shows the excess of executive power in this country and how it must be reined back. It has to be reined back. Well, that leads naturally to a question which has come from a couple of quarters. How can we help you and Witness J and Witness K. Those black letter laws uh, can potentially see me in jail if I don't get an open hearing. Uh, it's not me who should be on trial. We need to watch ourselves, Julian, as you know. It's not me who should be on trial. It's not me. I agree it's completely. Okay. It, it's um, and I hope that people taking part understand why that is the case. Um, so, has a trial date been fixed for your hearing yet? No. Um, we will almost certainly appeal the decision of a single judge to allow uh, me to be tried on a neither confirmed nor denied basis hmm. um, in secret. Um, and thus, uh, the, the defence I wish to bring, which would wholly implicate others, will not be heard in public. Um, I don't know if that deals with this question, but do the rules of legal professional privilege still apply to your trial? Yes, indeed. Yes. Yes, I, I, I uh, suppose so. But do you know what I'm dying to do, Gillian? I would love to go and talk to Penny Wong. I'd love to go and talk to Mike Dreyfus, Unforbidden. Yet I read in the papers that Attorney General Porter and officers of the Attorney General's Department have been briefing Penny Wong and Mark Dreyfus. Now, those Section 22 orders that are the secrecy orders that we can't talk about anything um, are imposed on me, my, my lawyers, my colleagues, the community, everyone. Um, the court staff were warned. The judge, indeed, I, I, I've sat in a court and heard uh, an attorney warn a judge uh, that these penalties were applicable from the bench down. Now, what are they doing briefing uh, Mrs. Dreyfus and Wong when I can't? Yeah, fair question. I mean, the mere fact that there is a witness, K, should tell the Australian people that there is morality and integrity in that agency. That... Uh, tells you that there are courageous, decent uh, people 
in the service of our country. Uh, I, I, I'm a great supporter of, the, uh, of our intelligence services. They're necessary. Um, it's their proper management. The maintenance of their morale is vital. And we have to be even-handed and decent. You, you do recall there was a major Soviet defector in 1992. Uh, following uh, that major defection, the United States and Britain uh, came to Canberra during Paul Keating's uh, prime ministership and um, close to, I don't want to be specific, but close to 10 uh, intelligence officers in an agency uh, were quickly retired, quickly retired. Um, these are issues uh, that have to be dealt with evenly. Why is K being put through this? And why were up to 10 officials retired after a major defection in 1992? This is not secret. It's reasonably well known. But it doesn't seem to be even-handed to pursuit of K when persons who were quickly retired, I've got to watch myself, swiftly retired uh, following a major Soviet defection. So um, uh, we lack proper oversight of our agencies uh, in a, at a parliamentary level. The Intelligence Committee of Parliament, I'm abbreviating its name, has no role on operational matters, no role at all. And I think the vast majority of Australians think that the matter that I'm associated with relates to improper conduct, of no gain to Australia, certainly no economic gain, loss, certainly nothing to do with defence because we need to keep Timor as an unsinkable aircraft carry on our trade routes and absolutely nothing to do with foreign relations to keep that country uptight as it had been for 10 years about its um, treaties uh, could not be consistent with developing effective foreign relations on every one of the three planks upon which the Intelligence Services Act authorised the agency to act, there was a gross failure. It was a most stupid, unintelligent uh, operation that should never have happened and it should have been allowed to go away quietly. And Kay was prepared not to press for a finding of unlawful conduct um, with presumably the compensation that should follow. We won't go into the constructive dismissal, dismissal aspects of it all, but it's been brought alive by this young attorney. Why? Why? What is the reason why Australia's been dragged down again in our region? Why? Another bad decision? I, I couldn't turn witness K away. I can't. I, I, I wouldn't forgive myself. I, you can't. Yeah, as a lawyer, um, I'm not going to be scared. You can't be too scared. The approvals were there. There was a, in fact, there was no access to an administrative appeals tribunal. They have no public interest disclosure rights, those people. Um, I could see an appalling morale issue um, Someone rang me recently and said, Caleri, tell the truth. Kay isn't a whistleblower. And no one knows who he is. He's never spoken a, a public word or asked for a public word. I said, indeed. He said, so tell the truth. He's the leader of a mutiny, wasn't he? I said, I can't answer that. I can't answer that. 
I did want to say earlier that it's a good agency uh, when there are people like Witness K. I can't go further. But um, I would do uh, much the same, uh, although I would have shifted my brief and my records out of my country. You do know that I had to stay abroad after that. My uh, team of Australian lawyers, uh, we had been put at risk by this public raid that told the world we might act for a spook or maybe other spooks. I had young uh, Aussie lawyer staff and suddenly overnight, uh, the Australian government had revealed the connection to my practice of Witness, uh, of Witness K and, and profoundly. And um, I stayed out of the country and uh, how many lawyers in my place will act again, for example, for a sovereign country. The new foreign interference laws have very cunningly made any activity that affects Australia's economic activities, no longer economic well-being, Australia activities as potential sabotage and uh, treason. So um, it's narrowed the scope of our uh, capacity to act for countries in the Pacific, Kiribati and uh, I had a brief in Vanuatu on occasion, and matters like that. So, um, yes, I'd do it again, but I would take protective measures for my staff, and I would tell them there's a possibility um, the Australian government might reveal uh, the case, disclose the case, as it did in, in my case. We, we had arranged for there to be a confidential hearing at The Hague under very strict rules. We'd appointed eminent judges, it was to be heard in private. The whole thing was blown sky high while we were asleep in The Hague. And um, my public comments to the ABC, I got a stress, were after that in line with advice I took at very senior level and in line with the law as the High Court sees it. Australian public are entitled to know of executive misconduct. It can't be hidden. Thinking, oh babe, there I'll go again There's a pistol in my mouth And a quiet voice that shouts Baby, no, 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 no See the way you look at her And it's like a carpet burn On the inside of her brain There'll be rain on my face Crowd around, I'll explain Some thousand reasons why I don't care I care Told me I should never, ever, ever rely on love It's the story of one girl who lost her weight Sorry for some girl who lost her brain to you Her name to you Never, ever, ever rely on love See you picking up the pace now Throw it all away now Do it all again Seven faces a week or Seven spaces to keep me away from here 
Don't you think that I know what you're doing to me, baby? And it's turning me green, green. Mm, I can't. Yeah, oh. Instead, I just don't care. Oh, my mama told me I should never, ever, ever rely on love. It's the story of one girl who lost weight. Sorry for some girl who lost brain to you. A name to you. Never, ever, ever rely on love. Never rely on love. La 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 love. La 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 love. La 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 love. to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR, your community radio station. We may miss Humphrey McQueen as a regular on Solidarity Breakfast, but here is Humphrey speaking at the launch of Life, Living Incomes for Everyone, a couple of weeks ago. Life is planning a range of actions in September leading up to the budget, so go to their Facebook page for updates. Let's listen to what Humphrey had to say. War, plague, famine, death, the four horsemen of the apocalypse raging through the ages. For 300 years, though, they've been driven by a fifth horseman. Its name is capitalism. COVID-19 was spawned by the needs that capital has to expand if it is to survive too. Now, that's easy enough to say, Curing the dots is a bit of a slog, perhaps impossible in the few minutes. So buckle up for a very fast ride in a very fast machine. War, famine, plague and death. Which poses the greatest threat at the moment? War's the one we're not watching. Last year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the hands of their doomsday clock closer to midnight than ever before. Because war's another gale of creative destruction for capitalism. 
World War II ended the Great Depression. Ever since, trillions of dollars have been poured into the corporate warfare state. Now, economic crises are as old as human history. Most happened because there wasn't enough to eat. You'll remember that bread riots sparked the French Revolution when the peasants could no longer afford cake. Famines are still with us, but they're now the exception. Otherwise, there would not be eight billion of us. A vast change then has occurred, but the injustices remain. Before capitalism, crises came out of there not being enough. Capitalism's distinguished by the reverse, by the need to overproduce anything that'll turn a profit. Those things are not, however, what most of us need. Hence, we have to be taught to want them. The industrialization of agriculture began some 300 years ago. Its expansion underwrote capitalism in every other sector. It's plundering the wealth of nature, destroyed the soils. So that the expansion of money capital then required that production capital move into virgin territory. 12 million slaves were wrenched out of Africa. In the Americas, they raised tobacco and coffee, sugar and cotton. Back in Europe, Capitalists set wage slaves to add value to those products. Meanwhile, in North America, the cry went out, go west, young man. And that move was necessary because the colonists back in the New England and slave south had destroyed the virgin soils there. Go west, of course, spelled genocide for the American Indian. That twin catastrophe was repeated here for the First Peoples and on more fragile soils. By 1900, the Chicago meatpacking industry was pumping out tins of poisonous pork. But where's the beef today? If you've seen Food Inc, you'll know that there in those big abattoirs, there are cattle up to their fetlocks in shit. And the meat packers today solve that problem by drenching the carcasses in chemicals. That's when I became a vego. Capitalist agriculture has nothing to do with nature apart from destroying it. Now the fake news about the virus is that they're the fault of the backward and the poor. In truth, the recent viruses come from the most modernized, industrialized agriculture. Ebola didn't start because people in the jungle started to eat monkeys. The first case was of a boy who'd been bitten by a bat. They came into contact with each other because the forests had been cleared for palm oil. SARS was the product of factory-scale production of poultry. Now, the Commonwealth has set up a committee on the post-virus economy. Its chair used to be the box cocky of Dow criminals. 
A Dow, you'll recall, gave us Agent Orange and Echo Site in Indochina. Dow and its rivals now promote pesticides, fertilizers, and genetically modified grains and creatures. Their business is to brew up the ingredients for fouling the planet. And that way to expand capital means that COVID-19 can't be the last of its strain. Factory farms mean big flu. Now, the implosion that began in 2006 was the latest crisis of overproduction. Now, to see why, try this little thought experiment. Go back to 2005. Close down all of the car plants in North America. And the ones in the rest of the world still have enough capacity to produce more cars than anyone can afford to buy. Something had to give. Now, production and financing are stages in a single process. Banks lend and borrow among themselves every second of the day, and they do so to cover the accounts of their clients. And Mr Moneybags, of course, keeps a close eye on those clients. He won't make advances if he can't get his money back. What the banks can't always see is how matters stand with the clients of their clients. Camelco, for example, might be solid. But what's happening inside the auto firms that buy its aluminium? Will General Motors pay? And on time. Fears spiral. Banks cut and run. Enter the GFC on the coattails of a crisis of overproduction. The so-called financial crisis hit the headlines because of excess capacity in the production system. Now, every crisis in capitalism offers it a new lease of life. Some corporations, of course, go out of business. Others survive by merging. Dow merged with DuPont a few years back. Machines have to be scrapped before they're worn out. That's why there's no car mating left in Australia. To keep the plants that screw the highest levels out of the workers. That's the survival mechanism. And the bosses, meanwhile, make us work longer, faster and harder, and if they can get away with it, for less real wages. The survival mechanism for capitalism is as true in the corner cafe as it is in the hellscape of an Amazon distribution centre. Now, the demand for machines that make the machines is what drives the capitalist system. Household demand for washing machines, for example, runs a very poor third. Shrinking consumer demand, of course, will worm its way back up through the supply chain. A collapse of sales in the white goods will eventually depress iron ore prices. So we need to prepare for a double whammy. Global capital, as many people have said tonight, have never, has never got over the implosion that started in 2006. Japan, for example, has been flatlining for decades, despite paying the corporates to borrow and printing trillions and trillions of yen. Capital does itself no good 
by, stop, by stepping up the exploitation of wage slaves unless it can turn a profit out of what all of us produce. Corporates have to sell all the stuff that they're overproducing. Now, in 2006, disruption burst out of that induced overconsumption. Banks pushed mortgages that they knew many of the poor would never be able to repay. And Wolf Street encouraged homeowners to use their principal asset as an ATM. Well, consumers are again being cautious. Now, I can get by on my age pension each fortnight. So I'm able to hoard one of the helicopter drops. I couldn't do that on Newstart. And tomorrow, I'll spend half of the $1,500 on the dental work that I can't get on any of the medical uh, uh, welfare systems. But I'm going to sit on the rest in expectation of cuts. Because I'm not an essential worker. Only those who feed the profits for the expansion of capital are essential. The rest of us can be financially triaged. So who rules? Well, capitalism, as we know, has survived lots of crises. And it does so by shifting the blame onto us and the costs onto us. As ever, the outcome is going to be decided by the relative strengths of the contending forces. And who are going to be our allies in this? Well, working people, my father used to keep telling me, have no friend but each other. That's why we need life. The state's not our friend. Governments organise capital and disorganise us up the right channels. We've never got anything by asking, and we never will. Oliver Twist, please, sir, I want some more, got him a boot in the bum. Nonetheless, the state is one more site where these conflicts have to be fought out. That some of us get pensions is one result of centuries of those struggles. So to unseat the four horsemen and face up to capitalism, we have to educate, organise and agitate. And in that struggle, it matters not whether we call like crows or as melodious as magpies. For life calls upon us to put our bodies and our brains on the line as we add our voices to the union chorus. Don't be too polite, girls. Don't be too polite. Show a little fight, girls. Show a little fight. Meanwhile in Richmond. Now rap is something we do. But hip-hop is something we live. Sky's the limit, align with the vision It's a tight squeeze for this life that I'm living Still tripping cause the time keeps ticking Took both pills, now my life seems different Need a push to the end Dig so deep, still looking for the edge Still got some shit on my chest But my mind stays focused right till the end I'm going to make the bomb to blow the head of the man In the cold and shit Don't live till I get no prima Poor pina, they look again to vida Nobody come for press, my football got blessed. To the children in Cobras, Cobras. 
take a peek through the window I see lust and greed with a little bit of love and peace Take care of the words that you speak These are the seeds that grow your reality Still drown in shades of deep purple I spit raps in the middle of a circle I jump cross hurdles Eyes wide in the middle of the night like the nocturnal I'm back to demonstrate It's more important be a human down A fucking soldier System racist Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Maggie Thatchtair, and former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, Big Supremo Ronnie Reagan. Now, we knew Joss was excruciatingly boring, but we didn't know he was boring. Maggie deliberately and consciously made the filthy rich filthy richer, sensible, no great economic reforms like slashing their tax rate from a crippling 83% to a more manageable 25%. For a start, surely their tax lawyers and the big four financial behemoths couldn't charge the same rate for for advising them how not to pay 25% as they charged for advising them how not to pay 83%. And most critical of all, she disempowered, indeed excoriated unions and workers who were so ripping off their caring employers like the poor coal corporations. While in his defence it's possible Ronnie had no idea what, what he was doing. Not that it mattered, the result was the same, although he only slashed the tax rate they don't pay from 70 to 28%. They were able to budget for these little benefits for the filthy rich. No, my bias is showing benefits for the whole community by slashing services for the undeserving poor. Like Maggie smashing public housing because she knew everyone deserved to own their own home like she owned her own home. And we bet the undeserving poor thrown onto the streets, which they did. 
Interestingly, the Ronnie Reagan Foundation, or whatever it's called, which is some sort of Ronnie Museum, only the most giant of minds would want to commemorate Ronnie, anyway, has forced current USR big supremo Donald Trample the Poor to withdraw references to the Ronnie Foundation in his election fundraising, which says heaps about Donald. Still on heaps, given two dedicated socialists, and it's not often the caring business class Heaps praise on dedicated socialists and calls for today's politicians to adopt their policies. Dedicated socialists, former big supremo nuclear hawk himself and the, the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer, Paul, introduced Maggie Ronnie-nomics to True Blue Aussie with great enthusiasm, including its overriding necessity to smash the evil unions. We hope Josh has thought through the implications of aligning himself with two such rabid socialists who devote their lives to working people, like company directors, shareholders, big supremos and big economic gurus. A woman made, a woman made the news by asserting aggressively that as a living woman, she had the human right not to wear a mask. And unfortunately, she didn't elaborate on what her human rights were as a dead woman which idiotic defence of her human living woman rights could make her at any time. By Tuesday, the government sent the trained killers into aged care facilities, presumably to put down mercifully the most critically ill. It's more humane to put them down painlessly with a bullet to the head than they've been getting, the pejorative Dan said also giving the train killers the chance to enjoy the fun, fun, fun of what they signed up for, or grammatically for which they, but, but never mind. Interesting, the problems are occurring in businesses run by the super-efficient private sector, and thus far not in advanced care facilities run by the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector. Can't work it out. Not that that stopped the usual suspects blaming the state government, which just doesn't happen to be responsible for aged care facilities, but hell, don't let that minor fact excuse it, so apparently the inefficient bloated hand is responsible after all. While one super-efficient private nursing home is so efficient and sincerely compassionate, it contacted one family three days after their parent had died to express their sorrow. Their mayor culpa, I hear... Not quite. They hit them with an invoice for next month's care, showing they've studied the bottom line secrets of our esteemed banks and financial institutions like AMP on the customers. And they have every right to sue the next of kin, the loved ones, if they refuse to pay up. After all, we can't expect the nursing home to carry the losses of that empty bed. Thankfully, there was good news amid the deaths, illness and mourning. Estia Health, one of the super-efficient, so super-efficient, the regulator was forced to take over two of its centres, despite or because of that, saw its share price rise, improving the health of the shareholders' wealth, the only health that matters. On those whose health doesn't matter, the expendable industrial cannon fodder, another mantra of the Maggie Ronnie-nomics that have so elevated the undeserving from poverty to extreme poverty, like contracting out government services we've so extolled for its role in quarantine hotels, for example, casual work, the gig economy, suppressed wage rates, forcing workers to go to work because it's battle-starve, is also working a treat in this COVID world. 
any wonder Josh admires all that success. Thankfully, the big super-efficient nursing home entrepreneurs by midweek expressed their concern for those ingrate workers by telling the government the inefficient bloated hand should increase its commitment to the ages bill and provision of the protective equipment those workers need to keep risking their lives every time they turn up for work. The caring employers didn't state that last bit. They stopped at the hand us the public purse bit. But the approach in itself shows they care, led by one of the biggest super-efficient providers, Shane Moron, My Profits, Scion of Doug, Moron, My Profits, whose, that Shane's entrepreneurial success and wealth are down to the fact his mum and dad slept together one night, daddy-o kicking off Shane's empire back in the 50s. It's so community-minded, isn't it, the private sector offering the public sector a role. Still on COVID, in the what-can-we-say department, as Donald asked why his popularity rating was so low over his response to COVID and couldn't comprehend why the leading medical expert was so popular. What can we say? Although comprehend, Donald? No, not words we'd associate together. On his opponent, headlined last week in the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Financial Times, their Capitalist Times, the deceptive radicalism of Joe Biden. And I thought, yeah, yeah, so deceptive, we've missed it all together. Over in the US of our Minister for Offence and Trained Killing, Linda rendered to Uncle Sam Olds and Minister for Going Overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marisa Payne in the turned up for our annual groveling festival, discussing a bit of train killing with the US of counterparts who know world peace hinges on crushing evil China, well, the bad guys generally, the US of particularly concerned that evil, aggressive China considers it has a right to access the waters of its coast, when the US of and Trubler was he know those waters are US of territory with the U.S. of insisting China abide by the law of the sea, which decrees all waters are U.S. of territory. Uh, yes, we asked U.S. of Secretary for U.S. of World State Mike Pompeo or else, uh, why do you demand others observe the law of the sea, Mike, but you refuse to sign it yourself? Because, Mike snapped gently, we are the law of the sea. And a great job they're doing too. Wherever evil nations assert some right to the waters of coast, like evil Iran, which insists on using the Straits of Hormuz just because it happens to be on its border, threatening the peaceful US of train killer fleets protecting its law of the sea. The US of can't be blamed if countries all over the world insist on existing on US of territory. Now, in fairness to Linda and Marisa, they told the US of True Blue Aussie would make its own decisions on these matters. We will make our own decision to follow your orders. They expressed True Blue Aussie's independence. And as they will return to two weeks of hibernation, giving them almost enough time to scrub the remnants of their US of counterparts' boots off their tongues, the Socialist Party offered its alternative to the caring business class offence and train-killing policy, what some long-haired commie greenie wooden worker in iron lots might call obsequious acolytes displaying their long-haired commie bias. We agree. 
evil China must refrain from assuming it has rights in the South China Sea, which is so clearly US of territory, the territory of our very, very, very close friend, that person Richard Mauls, the workers, couldn't control his radicalism. Finally, therefore, why does it remind us, listener, of a little kid in the schoolyard trying to take sides between the two big school bullies competing for supremacy? Good morning. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. We'll finish off with some words from Alison Pennington. She's the Chief Economist at the Centre for Future Work and this was a talk she gave for the Search Foundation. If you want to catch up with the whole night and their other guests, you just need to go to their YouTube channel. Ali has some pretty stirring and positive things to say as an alternative to the pretty underwhelming words of the Treasurer, PM and the business cronies when it comes to a possible Australia for workers coming out of COVID. So uh, it's not going to be news to anyone here that we are facing a pretty significant economic event just to give you an, a little indication of what it meant for a contraction in the 1990 recession we're looking at uh, you know a 10 percent gdp collapse in the june quarter coming up alone uh, on top of you know the past 10 we've already had so the unique nature speed and depth of this crisis and this contraction is like nothing we've seen before so whole parts of the economy were shut down all the customer facing sectors uh, which had higher contagion risk. And of course, it's while it's we uh, um, lament the state of those sectors, there's a big spillover effects that come from those. So you imagine if we've got retail front shop fronts that are closing, at some point the wholesale um, you know, links in the supply chain begin to change their, you know, their orders and then suddenly manufacturers are producing less stuff and you can see how the spillover effect doesn't just start with the loss of those customer facing sectors. Um, but broader supply chains have been disrupted, uh, particularly for a country like Australia, which is very uh, trade exposed. What we're seeing is massive jobs shed. We could lose two to three million jobs, maybe more. Uh, women and young workers have been the most affected, and that's particularly because they uh, predominate in insecure and customer-facing services work. Immediate loss of incomes for workers, families, businesses and organisations, uh, which has forced people to stop spending, which then leads to further job cuts. And this really is an unprecedented moment in history. And the key task for uh, progressives is to work out how do we stop this from becoming a depression? Because, you know, we, we don't sit on our hands and wait for the private sector to decide to invest. They are quite clearly cutting their losses and running. And we don't want to be back in a position that we did in the 1930s, where for 10 years we listened to people tell us that we were going to wait for this business-led recovery that never came had long-term high unemployment and high levels of destitution and uh, it took the 1940s for us to, to recover. Official unemployment increased slightly. Uh, it's at 992,000 
people, that's official um, unemployment, that's people who are applying and part of the job seeker process. But then if we add on those who worked no hours um, and then those who worked far fewer hours than normal, that's another 1.15 million people. And an extra 400,000 have left the labour market altogether since March, which um, by my calculations is 2.4 million people adjusted for the labour force 19% and you can see that's infinitely higher than the formal unemployment rate would suggest and that doesn't include potentially up to you know 900,000 more people who are discouraged or um, marginally attached according to the ABS. The government response so far the first two packages from March 70% of those went to business and 30% went to households by our calculations and um, that included the doubling of the job seeker payment the third package was the wage subsidy, uh, which both of these um, packages that were nominally for workers and households had a lot of veneer of universalism. You know, this is a one payment for all Australians was the way the JobKeeper payment was framed. Um, but also JobSeeker had some pretty critical exclusions from uh, people on the disability support pension, age pensioners, uh, carers. And the JobKeeper payment was weaponised. It was through using the Fair Work Act. Um, the government was able to work with uh, big employers to um, make the JobKeeper payment a, a framework in which wages and conditions could be attacked. Time-bound free childcare came in, and that was the first sector to lose the JobKeeper payment uh, with huge detrimental impacts to women and their ability to get back to work. And job trainer staying in the theme of you know putting job at the front of stuff, which is very good marketing. 350,000 courses in on-demand areas, so like healthcare, manufacturing, as well as the extension of the apprentice wage subsidy. When I outlined the, the scale of this depression level jobs crisis, we're having that 350,000 free or subsidized courses will barely scratch the surface of even young people who are leaving school and looking for um, pathways into jobs. And of course, these are not jobs, these are just skills and training. So some of the major impacts on work and industries we've, come, we've seen in this point coming out of this crisis is that there isn't immediately a path to snapback in any of those customer facing sectors and no plan for what happens to those workers. Aviation and university sectors were, were centred in the, the story of the COVID crisis. In many ways, they were staged battles uh, whereby the government sought to completely attack what was left of the public sector um, aspects of the university system and the aviation sector they worked very closely with government to screw over many thousands of aviation workers we've seen labor market inequalities intensify and in that's based on centering around whether you had a secure job or not because insecure workers are cheaper to sack and they were the first to go one of the ways in which this labor market inequality is being intensified is based on the work from home or non-work from home distinction. We worked out that about 30% of the workforce could work from home and they're more likely to be professional, full-time, permanent university educated workers. And they earn on average 25% more than people who can't work from home. And then you add to that the inequality of insecure work, the fact that people who are going out and leaving their houses to do their jobs don't have paid sick leave. Um, which has become one of the, you know, the Achilles heel of our fight against this pandemic, is that people are financially penalised for getting sick. I've noted here the gender pay gap because I think what we're going to see in this time is actually far more of a difference between women who can work from home and then women who are going out and working in essential jobs. I think that gap in pay is going to be 
some in some ways much greater than that between men and women doing the same type of work. There are obviously some concerns for this type of work as well, in particular a massive cost shift from capital to labour in packing down offices and forcing um, employees to set up their own workplaces in their home without any regard for work health and safety or the cost necessarily of running your own office. Uh, because we are in a place of very diminished power in uh, collective organisation, this has been a, a big opportunistic push by organised business and a willful government to double down on the attack on wages and conditions that was happening pre-crisis. So we were in already record low wage growth before this pandemic hit. Some of the new attacks have been coming from all over. We've had forced freeze a national minimum wage and award rate. We've had the attacks on the EAs and how uh, the process in which we can form and make enterprise agreements. Public sector wage cuts at a Commonwealth and state level, which have huge macroeconomic effects, as well as directly attacking predominantly female workers who make up most public sector workers. And then these attacks are coming from these false assumptions and these arguments that by lowering wages, we're somehow going to create or protect jobs. There's shared sacrifice. If we accept that there's some sacrifice to make now, we will resume some normal compensation level at some point after. That's not at all, obviously, how it works. Um, this is a fight between labour and capital, and um, labour is not quite organised right. Um, but we do need to prepare for this fight to defend wages, rights and benefits. I don't think there's been a clearer time where the interests of the unemployed and those who have been kicked out of work or long-term unemployed have are now very much tied into everything that's happening in the employment space. Our friends at The Australian ran this absolute just BS of a story which had a very relatable bloke called Eddie who owns three BPs. And he is struggling to find anyone who will work for his measly 22 hours of minimum wage work a week because it falls below the current job seeker rate. And what we're seeing now is this mounting argument from government and employers that somehow there are these jobs that exist and people are lazy. And of course, this is about lowering expectations about what happens with the job seeker payment and the rate of the job seeker um, the payment itself, but it's obviously so tied into maintaining low-wage labour because Eddie's problem is that people won't take his shitty job. This is a position that's good for us. We want to be able to say that the job seeker payment is, it should force employers like Eddie to actually pay people um, decent rates. The research that I did into the actual evidence of employers actually having labour shortages found that in this survey that government did, only 3% of employers actually said that they were struggling to find people. And I think if you could look at those 74 firms, they would most certainly be just people like Eddie. So another major area of uh, where we should keep a lookout of this mounting attack on wages and conditions is this back and forth that um, government's been doing with the uh, union movement in terms of, I think, performing that they are getting along or performing some sort of consensus building. Um, but it's clear to me that these industrial relations working groups he's compiled between business and unions, of which there are five, um, you only have to look at the topics of the, the basis in which people are meeting to know that this is quite clearly an employer agenda. One group will be looking at weakening wage floors, award simplification is what they will call it, um, protecting and expanding casual work, in particular overturning the, the recent federal court decision which said that if an employer 
is employing you on a regular basis with regular shifts, you are liable to pay them as a permanent employee. Expanding non-union below award EA making. And what they want to do is get rid of the better off overall test, which says that any agreement you form with your workers has to improve upon the minimum wage or the minimum floors. Locking in wages in whole of project EAs. This one's quite terrifying because uh, what it could do potentially is block out the ability of um, unions to be able to work with future movements like a, a, an environment movement that wanted to shut down a coal mine, for instance. What this agreement could do is lock out the ability of industrial action over the entire life of a coal mine or a gas project, which is probably a, a better example. That's the kind of impact that these industrial relations tools can have. So what we have to think about in, in this time is not to think of this as stimulus, right? This is what we're looking at is this, the scale of destruction of jobs and the, you know, the battering of private sector activity is the, the money that's being pushed into the economy and that will be pushed in is, is going to have to be a reconstruction effort. Plus, we don't want to stimulate a set of really shitty conditions. We came into this crisis with a whole heap of problems and a whole, the snapback is not desirable for workers, I don't think. We don't want people to go back to work and we don't want them to go out shopping. The goal is obviously to support this temporary shutdown, support incomes from non-market incomes from government to keep flowing, support the work health and safety of workers on the job and, and the safety of the public more broadly. So this is why we need a COVID-19 reconstruction plan. And um, as I said at the start, we came out of the 1930s depression after 10 years of stagnation um, with a very strong comprehensive, you know, ambitious public-led reconstruction agenda. At that time, to kick that off, we, we had much higher levels of union organisation and civil society um, organisation. But I think we have to be talking about this because the money's going to be spent. We just have to be building up the forces and the ability to shape the way that happens. So the, some of the key elements, I think, of this reconstruction plan has to be a commitment to full employment, extending income protection for anyone who needs it, Repairing and strengthening our health and skills system, including making them fee free and centering TAFE back into them, rebuilding our vet sector and public universities from childcare through to university, it should be free. Um, sustained public in infrastructure investment, we actually have very low levels of infrastructure investment, contrary to the way that it's, it's positioned and um, you know, demonstrated by politicians. We need to make serious investments in renewable power infrastructure and be able to we'll diffuse it across our economy and, and export as well. Non-market housing of huge importance in our totally derelict, high inequality housing market and a permanent expansion of public services with more direct hiring is going to be very important. It's more that last one that I think that I think we can actually start to make some inroads in now. The agenda that has been set for Australia and what's been possible for us and been possible for business has been actually centred around what's happened with the virus. Of course, like this whole crisis is because of the virus. So I've been, I've been thinking a lot and listening to the epidemiologists who are saying actually elimination is something that is within reach, within grasp for Australia. Uh, and up until this point, the story has always been that we could, the best we can do is try and suppress it. And so what's clearly happened in the last couple of weeks with Victoria is it shows just how sneaky this virus is and just how um, easily it spreads and how rapidly it spreads to the point where we've had to and rightfully 
shut down the Victorian economy for a period of six weeks. And the fact that it's six weeks would suggest that it's four weeks for the virus cycle plus two weeks to basically like nip it in the bud, which would suggest that the state is gunning towards that. And besides New South Wales, which hasn't said we want to eliminate, most states have said we have an interest in elimination. The Commonwealth does not want to. And this is where I think we start thinking about what are the power of plays that going on and how do we burst this open and you know seize the public health ground, I would say. There are very high economic and social costs of shutdown and reboot. Clearly this suppression is, that mechanism isn't gonna work. Neither is the let it rip and herd immunity approach, right? We've seen what's happened in the US and Sweden. Um, they've had similar economic outcomes, sky high unemployment and just way more people dead. All right, so that's, we don't wanna go down that uh, route and I don't think Australians would stand for it. Uh, contrary to what Morrison has said, which is we can't eliminate the virus because that would close us off from the world. Australia is a very trade exposed economy. It's very reliant on importing manufacturers, including 96% of our medical goods. Um, but also that doesn't help us to understand why New Zealand, which is a very similar economy to Australia's, which is it depends on primary good export. It's deindustrialized in the same way, and low productivity, low wage economy. And they are looking at how they can maintain elimination as a strategy. So I think elimination actually provides leverage for organised labour for better jobs, getting control of the skill system and better organisation prospects. I think flare-ups are likely, but it's about focusing our efforts on elimination as the end goal. Because if we're always gunning for elimination, then we're talking about ongoing investments in the public healthcare system, into Medicare, ongoing investments into worker organisation in the workplace because you have to have very strong work health safety standards to maintain an elimination stance. There's a huge discussion to have about what this would look like for the Australian economy. You know, for starters, we can say those are um, benefits for, for organised labour. So why is it that business want to lower expectations that, that elimination is a, is a possible goal in Australia? They all scrambled behind the Prime Minister to say, Victorian experience shouldn't be seen as a reason to switch to an elimination strategy. That would tank the economy. Rather, we should get to the execution of the suppression strategy right. So this idea that what we're doing now is suppressing, but we are also tanking the economy, so to speak, under this approach. And so you have, you know, you start thinking, why do why do they want to lower expectations? And I would suggest that it's because they are they fear what happens with control over the supply of labour because business is very dependent on cheaper migrant labor. They don't want to lose control over the work process because that would diminish their ability to control wages. And I think this is why it's a battleground um, for us. The other reason why they would like to avoid this as neoliberals, they don't like any public sector or public good responses. And this is quite clearly a shining light for us and this is where I get to wave my flag for Medicare. We've taken it for granted that our public health response has come before the economic one. Some liberals would say, well, it's good that he followed the advice of the experts or the, the let it rippers are being like, look, he shouldn't have done that. But actually what's happened is the trust and the belief that public health is important has actually put a barrier to the ability of the letter rippers to let go. And it's also diminished the ability of the neoliberal project to, to keep pushing. Our success in flattening the curve, I think actually bought time for them to work out what this snapback or business-led recovery narrative would be. But the Victorian shutdowns, I think, have disrupted that story now. And it's gonna be very hard for, for the government to continue with 
the austerity um, narrative and the austerity agenda uh, in terms of, you know, cutting the JobKeeper program right back, cutting JobSeeker. And I think what this shows is that states have retained a lot of democratic space. There's going to be significant scouches, I think, between states and the Commonwealth on how it is we get through these next steps. One of the clearest possibilities or strategies that organised labour can take is to be slaying the dragon of precarity. Precarious work is quite clearly the Achilles heel in fighting the pandemic. We've seen with all of the, the workplace outbreaks from Newmarch House, Cedar Meats in, in New South Wales, and now more recently in Victoria with the aged care facilities and the abattoirs, this is the common factor in these workplaces is labour hire and casual work. And it's very difficult to convince the poorest workers without any security in their jobs to stay home when they're feeling a little unwell if they are financially penalised for doing that. So we have to remove the financial penalty that workers take on. The costs of this outbreak far outweigh what it would cost to deliver secure work to these people. The reason why we want to deal with precarious workers is because it's also the Achilles heel of unionisation. It's, it's quite clearly being the strategy of capital to dismantle formal secure jobs, decent benefits, and that security because when workers are secure, they unionise. When they're insecure, they don't. So I think we can build a labour strategy that, that focuses on unions becoming leaders in the health response because lifting the quality and the pay of jobs is critical. What we know is that one in three workers don't have any paid sick leave, which is where we are not prepared. We don't have the right weapons for this war if you want to use this, this term. Uh, the normal churn model of this, these precarious workplaces, um, you know, aged care, you know, lots of social services work, childcare, like a lot of the so privatised social services depend on high levels of churn, but that churn is going to be too expensive and dangerous for business as well. Some of the really awesome stuff, I think we're starting to see unions start to shift from even just the position of work, PPE and work health safety is about defending the, the safety of, of workers. But it's so clear now that workers' health and safety is public health and safety. And then you expand from that because we want train drivers to be safe, uh, to not be carrying COVID when they're doing their jobs because we're going to take public transport. But then if that public transport provider is a private provider, then we also have an interest in undermining the cost basis of the private model of how it is that these essential services run because they often depend on insecure and precarious work in order to make their money. So you can see how they kind of spill over into opening up this space for us to talk about how do we get more services into public hands. There's a, a really awesome campaign in the UK called We Own It, uh, which has been building up through the Corbyn period and I think is, you know, making lots of strides now in this COVID environment. The potential for us to look at sectors that have been poor performing privatisations that have been parasitic on this precarious work and dangerous work for us now, which include aged care, disability work, um, the vocational education sector, childcare, mental health, social services, employment services. These are all really large employers. And they're also female-dominated employers. So they're also this kind of strategy carries the good jobs framework, which means making jobs more secure and righting the wrongs of the neoliberal period, because these are all privatisation experiments in the neoliberal period of essential services. These should be in public hands. Well, why don't we target public sector job creation? Uh, we only have something like 18% uh, public sector employment. Even like the social democratic countries have upwards of, you know, 30 more. 
So like in terms of framing our campaign demands, we could think of it in this way. We should think about it um, as undoing the decades of outsourcing damage. I think that COVID can help us by driving a public health safe work agenda. We can actually start to un unpick the logic of these um, you know, social services contracts run by behemoths like Serco, for instance. Like we could build campaigns that take on the big guys. We need more direct employment in planning capability because in the last few decades, the public sector has been totally smashed. And in part, you can just look at the consultancies and the rise of these um, other parasites of which have emptied the knowledge, policy knowledge and capability of our institutions to plan. I think that we should cut all government contracts to consultancies and offer good enough wages to entice all those people out and work for the public service because they are often ex-public servants anyway. Um, we need to build IT capability because actually it's going to be really hard to plan for any kind of reconstruction because the sector is also smashed. I would finish on the importance of public sector unions. It's obvious in kind of the strategy I'm putting forward that they would be playing a really important role. It's about building cross-union and civil society campaigns through them and imagining that there would be a, a larger social governance role of unions in planning the delivery of those public goods. So once we take them back into public hands, the people who run those services should also be a part of planning for those services with the community. There are many economic and political dangers at hand, but there are many opportunities for us as well. I think we can link worker rights into a public health response. We can expand the, the space for the public sector and therefore diminish private control over large sections of our economy. And we can build union capacity to lead redistribution, right? Because it's not just about government spending more, it's about redistribution. We have to always keep that in mind. And we can imagine a new model of growth that is public-led, more democratic. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We'll go out with a tune from Linda and Vika Bull, who have just released a retrospective album. Talk to you next week. Keep safe. Look after each other.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.